You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1322, entitled Who Year's Day. Our podcast title is Pod Seekers. Now, co-host Megan McHugh has some work to do on her own TARDIS today, so I am the last Jan on Earth, Rob Jan here with Zero G. So I thought we'd warp off into the space-time continuum void with a bit of Doctor Who just to start with. And yeah, that's going to form the backbone of today's Zero G, a look at the New Year's Day Doctor Who special, Revolution of the Daleks. And so we'll start off with the Doctor Who theme, a symphonic version from the DW project. It's not as big a deal as it used to be to have a full symphony orchestra version of Doctor Who because, of course, with the Murray Gold years in the past, they have been using quite large bands (laughs) to make it go. But still, it's always nice to hear a, a lavish version of the Doctor Who theme. Hi, this is Fraser Hines. I played Joe in... Emmerdale Farm. You're listening to 3 Triple R FM. Och, I also played wee Jamie McCremon and Doctor Who. Aye, uh, uh, my giddy aunt. Yeah, yes, well, <clears throat> Jamie, do try and keep up in the future and uh, in the past as well. Yeah. <laughs> a, a lavish, rich Doctor Who interpretation there by the DW Project on their eponymous album, Doctor Who Symphony version. Ah. Revolution of the Daleks is what we're talking about here today on Zero G to start off with. Written by showrunner Chris Chibnall and directed by Lee Haven Jones. And Lee Haven Jones also directed Spyfall Part 2 and Orphan 55 in the past. So he's not new to the Doctor Who oeuvre. (laughs) The oeuvre, if we can say that. Now, this is uh, technically the capstone to the 12th season of New Who. Second season with Jodie Whittaker as the notionally 13th Doctor. And I say notionally because of so many amendments to the Doctor's backstory now in play. Mere enumeration of the iteration of the character is somewhat academic. Well, I'm not necessarily a continuity set in stone wonk. Well, nine times out of ten. And and I've seen odder things in science fiction and odder things in Doctor Who for that matter. The New Year's Day special, well, it's a bit longer, about 10 or so minutes. You can catch up with it on iView if you haven't. There will probably be a repeat on the actual ABC broadcast as well. I am going to spoil it rotten today, so please feel free to tune out if you haven't seen it and you don't want to know anything at all about it. I'm going to play a track when I'm finished, so when you hear the music, you can turn your radio up again. (laughs) You can't say that I don't give you five minutes to reach safe distance. Light the blue touch paper or the blue TARDIS and retire. So, all right, so the Doctor Who's New Year Day special, Revolution of the Daleks, in which 
And here we go, spoilers. A British Prime Minister tries to grab the popularist tiger by the tail and commissions an unscrupulous American industrialist to provide an army of remote-controlled Dalek drones for security duties across the United Kingdom to make Britain safe again. Well, that's going to work out as well as the last time similar schemes did on Doctor Who, or indeed as it does whenever somebody tries to weaponise the xenomorphs in the Aliens universe. When the car-led mutants inevitably show up to take over the drones, the plan even has its own facehuggers, a nightmare habit that the psychopathic would-be Hooniverse conquerors use to subdue a human prior to taking control of them so they can use them as a meat puppet to do their evil bidding. Chris Knopf from Sex in the City plays Jack Robertson. He's the Trumpian businessman who caused a bit of a flap previously with poorly managed toxic waste, created a giant spider infestation. Anyway, it's no surprise at the end of this episode that Jack Robinson is going to go for a presidential run, so to speak. And I don't mean just a jog around the uh, Potomac. <sighs> Baffled and bewildered. He is in this episode, but always out with a rapacious eye for the main chance. Dame Harriet Walter played the Prime Minister, and she's been in everything that's Shakespeare. Also in Downtown Abbey as well. I like saying that because I know it offends the purists. Why don't I take them downtown to the Abbey? Sounds pretty good to me in terms of um, <laughs> police procedural at least. And yes, she's been in a few of those procedural shows, lots of Agatha Christie and Miss Marple and so on. She's also been in Star Wars The Force Awakens and in everything else but not Doctor Who before. So you can really forget about her IMDb database listing. You know you've arrived when you've been asked to appear on Doctor Who. The Doctor is in a Jadoon prison. Remember the Jadoon on the moon and so on? Space cops, basically. Rhino-faced space cops. And they have separated her from her fam, her crew. For way longer than either party thought. 19 years the Doctor gets imprisoned for. 10 months away from Yaz, Ryan and Graham in the real world back on Earth. Well, it's pretty real for the Doctor, who until she is rescued by Captain Jack Harkness, John Barrowman reprising his Doctor Who and Torchwood role as the immortal time traveller who is up for anything, or indeed anyone. He's a bit of a wild card, is Captain Jack. It's a pretty cool jailbreak and also some good callbacks as we see past foes in there with the Doctor, a uh, weeping angel who she nicknames Angelica and a pair of ouds that she calls Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> the Doctor shrugs it all off. In fact, they don't even mention to the companions how long that she's been immured for, which is kind of unfair. She shrugs it off, but her posse doesn't because that 10 month has been emotional hell for them which forms a sort of foundation for a theme of missing out on people's lives which later resolves itself in graham and ryan staying behind on earth while yaz and the doctor leave for further adventures although it's not foreshadowed i thought that they carried that off well enough compared to some of previous companions partings where they just go oh i'm off we've parting gifts from the Doctor that will leave them in a mode where they can appear again in the show, rather like some of the previous companions, uh, Sarah Jane Smith, for example. 
Once they've gotten a taste for saving Earth, it will no doubt continue on. Ryan, played by Tosin Cole, and Graham, played by Bradley Walsh. They will be missed. I, I have enjoyed having an older male presence aboard the TARDIS, and Ryan brought a lot of enthusiasm to his role. That leaves us with Yaz, played by Mandip Gill. And that may work out well for her at the moment, uh, travelling in a basically an all-female TARDIS. That will be an excellent sort of opportunity for her to expand her character. With so many crew aboard the TARDIS in the past and the present, uh, up until now, it's always been somebody who gets shortchanged in each episode. And I thought, just by my sort of rough observation, that Yaz was the one who often got that, except in uh, special episodes where they were focusing upon her character in particular. Well, before they go, Graham and Ryan see the other Doctor watching them. That's uh, Joe Martin from Timeless Children. Um, that bodes interestingly for the future. Or the past, you never know with Doctor Who. I did say that Yaz will be with the Doctor in a two-woman TARDIS crew. TARDIS essentially being something else as well that has manifested as at least as a woman. But this will only occur at least until comedian John Bishop joins as companion Dan later in the next season of Doctor Who. He has been in the series Skins and the Ken Loach film Route Irish, did his own shows such as uh, John Bishop's Britain and Only Joking, as well as appearing on the panel show Eight Out of Ten Cats. And he took part in the BBC series Stargazing Live, which revolved around the European Astronaut Centre, and he did a um, simulated spacewalk underwater. So he's got a little bit of form there in the space area, at least, which will stand him in good stead in Doctor Who, or not. Now, we know that the Daleks are racial purists. They're xenophobic as they come, and then some. Uh, but they do actually have form with human-Dalek hybrids, as appears in this story. Thinking back to Patrick Troughton's Evil of the Daleks season four serial back in 67, which is mostly, by the way, one of those lost serials that they don't actually have all the episodes for. In fact, I think they've only got one. Well, there's a lot of other Doctor Who Dalek stories as well where the Daleks have revealed that they're not too keen when push comes to trundle about having competitors who are also Dalek, but not quite as pure as the current reigning class of Daleks seems to think. It's actually a, an interesting little plot line there, and I'm not sure that it actually works for the Doctor to call in the essentially the Dalek SS as a desperate last-ditch ploy to take care of the Daleks on Earth. I'm not sure that things were that desperate... I mean, you know, the Daleks were only in Britain, as is the case in Doctor Who, invading one corner of the planet. Perhaps it was imminent danger that the Doctor sensed. Anyway, they look pretty cool with their red tracking lights along their 3D printed casings. But I do wonder, for advanced cyborgs, they're not very good at detecting people hiding around corners, are they? Uh, well, they've gotten over that whole stair-climbing Achilles heel anyway. These Daleks, like previous ones, can fly. I'm also not sure about the Doctor destroying one of the spare TARDISes that she had on hand from the last story. It seems a bit callous in light of the 
time-travelling machine being actually sentient? Maybe these didn't have time to gear up as AIs. I don't know. It seemed a bit wrong, really, especially since we've seen on a number of occasions that the Doctor can jettison and destroy individual rooms in a TARDIS. So why do the whole thing? Hmm. I thought that was a bit of clumsy writing there, at least, on Chris Chibnall's part, who is actually a pretty good Whovian in terms of knowing all the lore and as well as being a person who's obviously <laughs> not afraid to take a sonic screwdriver to the continuity and change things up in a dramatically big way. Well, Doctor Who, the revolution of the Daleks was seen on New Year's Day and you can catch up with it on ABC iview and i'm sure that there will be a repeat of it at some stage on regular abc broadcasting but that's all to the good because i've spoiled it rotten there do i think it was one of the best doctor who episodes i've seen no not even amongst the um the seasonal specials that we've had i do actually wonder if having a special at the end of the year loses some of its cachet when it's not actually at christmas because why have a christmas special you know, I mean, a New Year's Day special, well, maybe not so much. Although it did sum up some of the themes of actual 2020, when you think about it. You know, popularist politician gone mad, businessman betraying people's trust. Well, mind you, that's something that has been running throughout history and is actually a science fiction trope all in its own. So anyway, that was the Doctor Who special look forward to the continuing series when they get to it and i also cut them some slack too because the covid epidemic has done quite a bit of damage to production across the world amongst all of its other dreadful connotations and implications and the results of it so you know they did a good job to get it up i actually heard that john bishop the new companion is uh, recovering from covid19 as well at at this particular moment so You know, it's all out there. Something that cheered my little heart today as I was going through the public transport system was hearing David Bowie singing at one of the stations. It was an underground station for that matter, but it wasn't actually the song Underground, but, you know, never mind. And I'm thinking of Chris Knopf's character, the odious Jack Robertson in the Doctor Who special. And I thought, yeah, we'll go with The Man Who Sold the World. And this is by... Charlie Pollock from the Lazarus original cast recording. And since we're sort of in the um, the region of David Bowie's birthday on the 8th of January and indeed his passing on the 10th of January, I thought this one might fly in this particular part of the space-time continuum. G'day, this is Yanto Jones. You've reached Torchwood, Melbourne on 3 FM. Do not leave a message after the tone because we already know who you are. Indeed, Charlie Pollock there with The Man Who Sold the World, in case you weren't listening to the lyrics for some reason, from the Lazarus original cast recording. Mr Bowie, of course, the creator of that song originally. All right, on to Truth Seekers. Now, this is an Amazon Prime series, and it's uh, eight episodes so far, one season. Well... Okay, what we're looking at here is a send-up of the supernatural ghost chases kind of thing. Ghost chases being a a sub-program involved in supernatural, which in itself was a send-up. Uh, it's complicated, but, you know, I think um, 
original Ghostbusters or uh, Abbott and Costello meet the monsters, uh, even probably more apt Wellington Paranormal and what we do in the shadows. So, yeah, expect that kind of mixture of comedy horror after a pretty scary opening. They lean into the gore and the graphic horror in this and then they've got their funny bits after that. So you may not be all up with that or you may be. I, of all people, do not judge. Now, this is a creation of Nick Frost and Simon Pegg, the genre comedy maestros who I first saw, I believe, if I recall correctly, and I may not, in Shaun of the Dead, the Zomcom. You know, also in the chronological order of which I watched them in was not necessarily the order which they were created in or indeed shown. Spaced, of course. Simon Pegg is Scotty. <laughs> or at least one of the iterations of that. I could go on and on, but I'm not going to. I think we know Nick Frost and Simon Pegg's work well enough. Both of them have acting roles in Truth Seekers as well, which is not to be confused with another show called Truth Seekers. Now, Malcolm McDowell plays the father of Nick Frost's character in this one. And Nick Frost is playing a telco Wi-Fi installer called Gus Roberts. He's a pretty <laughs> tightly wound fellow. He does Truth Seeker videos on his own YouTube channel. And he's not at all chuffed when he's told by his boss, who's played by Simon Pegg at the company Smile. Uh, he's not at all happy when he's told he's got to be a trainer for a young man called Elton John. Yes, that is his name. Now, it's no surprise that Gus Roberts is an enormous conspiracy buff in this story. He's been tracking all sorts of things, like the radio broadcasts that have been going since World War II. Nobody knows where they come from. And that's actually a thing. I looked that up myself, which is a, probably not advisable once you start going down those rabbit holes. Well, you know. But Gus Roberts also has a, a nice sort of social function. Like he brings cheer to people who are so lonely that they, they cut their telco cables just so that they can talk to someone. Anyone, a repairman will do. So before you can say Jim Carrey and Cable Guy, we're into a whole labyrinthal conspiracy about people trying to do certain things using the internet. I won't go into that because it is, after all, part of the main plot of the story, and I don't want to spoil that for you. Oh, Elton John's sister is a cosplayer. She's building her own Dalek costume, so a nice little nod there. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost's new comedy here. Truth Seekers, also created by James Serafanovich and Nat Saunders. And it's directed by Jim Field-Smith. All eight episodes on Amazon Prime at the moment. Now, they only run for about 24 to 32 minutes each. So watch out for that. I think it was originally a, um, a web television series before uh, Amazon Prime picked it up. Now, Nick Frost playing the uh, the broadband installer, he's pretty good at that. He's sort of a bit of a lost one. His deceased wife has influenced his story and his narrative to the extent that he has become this uh, 
runner of this truth seeker. He's got all the gear, you know, the ectoplasm detectors and so on that you'd expect. We will also see in the course of this series a young woman named Astrid. Feels like she's playing the number 11 character from Stranger Things in this, even down to her wardrobe at times. Emma D'Arcy is playing Astrid. Um, Samson Kao is playing Elton John. I don't know, know too much about him. I've not seen him before. The funny thing about it is that absolutely no one ever takes any notice of his name. <laughs> uh, and the running gag is that he has so many random jobs that he's been doing in the past that always, always seem to be relevant to the, the ghostbusting that they are doing on hand at the time. Uh, Malcolm McDowell, what can we say about him? His resume includes playing Alex the Droog from A Clockwork Orange, and, yeah, they do kind of reference that at one stage because there is a bit of mind-fluence going on in this and some uh, programming. Uh, he was H.G. Wells in the Nicholas Meyer movie Time After Time, uh, opposite David Warner. Uh, Samuel Loomis in the uh, remakes of the Halloween series, um, uh, he played Caligula in that infamous movie. Um, the man who killed Captain Kirk in Star Trek Generations. One of his accomplishments in cinema. He was in the Heroes television series. He's played Merlin. He's been in everything. In this production in Truth Seekers, he spends a lot of his time sloping about um, Cus's home in his underwear and uh, scruffy and wearing a, a tatty old dressing gown. It's actually a role that he seems to have been born to play. <laughs> and I've seen him do this more than once, and it just always works for him. He's actually quite um, a sympathetic character in this as he sunsets in the story, but he actually plays a critical part in it too. Simon Pegg plays David Gus's boss, the CEO of the Smile Broadband Company. So we don't see him as much as we might like, but this is more Nick Frost's show in terms of appearance on screen. Helen, that's Elton John's sister, the one who I just said uh, is a bit of a cosplayer, or she would be. She's agoraphobic as well. Susie Wakoma plays Helen. We saw her in Enola Holmes, and she was Shuri's voice from Wakanda in the Lego Marvel Superheroes 2 video game. She's got quite a bit of video game voice acting experience there. Oh, another welcome face is Julian Barrett playing Dr. Peter Toynbee. And we know him from the Mighty Boosh where he played Howard Moon. And he's had another uh, genre credit to his name in uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. The hospital set genre comedy horror, whatever the hell else it was. <laughs> oh, yeah. So... This is a truth seekers. Did I like it? That's a tough one. It's a slow burn. It's not as funny as the last micro genre comedy series we watched, which was uh, Zomboat. But it's a gentle chuckle, I felt. And I did appreciate their constant genre geekery in it. The actual story itself has some legs to it. I would have watched this if it was a straight horror series, I think because it has some interest in it there. I like the fact that uh, Gus was a Whovian, but he says airily, I grew out of it after Tom Baker. <laughs> oh, dear. There's a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff like that that pops up. And the, the trope of uh, creating content for the Truth Seekers video channel is actually quite arch and 
timely too, I thought. Anyway, at eight episodes and each one only about 20 to 30 minutes, it's not going to grate on you too much if you decide to just watch all of it. You know, it's just about the length of a movie, basically, once you put it all together, uh, maybe an extended edition of a movie. And I, and I thought the visuals are quite good. The production values are quite high. So it's, it's obviously just a, a little fun project that they put together. And that's the way it plays. Truth Seekers, two words, on Amazon Prime. If you're in a certain mood, you want to see a bit more of the old frosty peg sort of <laughs> content, well, it's there for you. All right, so what will I play off the back of that? Well, actually, if I put a bit more thought into it, I would have played a track based on a folk song that does appear fairly constantly throughout the show with good reason for it. But instead, I decided I'd go with introitus preceps transito spatium, <laughs> which is a terrible rendition of a title of a track called The Truth and the Light from music from the X-Files soundtrack by Mark Snow and indeed Chris Carter here. Hello, this is Peter Davison. I played the Fifth Doctor. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Interesting. This thing is smaller on the inside than it is on the outside. Sorry, mustache. But not yet. Rob Jan here, flying Jan solo today. Our co-host Megan McHugh is out there making some repairs to her own TARDIS. Best wishes to her on this day. It is our first show for the new year, Zero G. And 2021, and I think parts of it at least, are shaping up quite well. Uh, certainly the last book that I read, I'm still reading it, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. I got the title wrong last time I told you about it. Excellent book. Probably the most important science fiction book of the last decade. And it just sort of pops over into the, the new one. And it's certainly the first most important science fiction novel I'm reading this century so far. <laughs> but it, the, the century is still young. It's all about climate change. And we will get into it later on in Zero G and do a proper review of it. But until then, if you can seek out Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, please do. It's a cracker of a book. Gives us a lot of hope for the future. It's about time we had something where we can get that element out of it instead of all of the other dystopias. And living in the intersection of several science fiction dystopias as we have been in 2020. I could name dozens of them and we were all there in the sweet spot, it felt like. Anyway... What have I else have I been watching? I've been watching The Watch. Not watching my watch, but The Watch, which is a TV series on Stan. Uh, it's directed by Simon Allen, who gave us the Musketeers television series, the recent one. I worked on the TV sequel to Dust Boot and MI High, as well as turning in episodes of New Tricks. Did I say he was the director? Actually, he is the writer. By way of Terry Pratchett, of course, because the, the Unk Mopork City Watch of the title 
is actually from Discworld, Terry Pratchett's immense, highly influential and magnificent satirical fantasy series. Now, this is a BBC America series originally, and there are eight episodes. Once again, you know how they do it with streaming. One season so far. I think they drop on Mondays, actually. So there might be the second episode on today by now. I've watched the first episode of The Watch. <sighs> he says, puffing his cheeks out. Look, there's a lot of changes. <clears throat> it doesn't share much DNA, as Terry Pratchett's daughter said, with the actual watch from Ankhmapork. There are elements there. It feels like the the ideas have been waved over it at times, and other times they really zero in on it. So I don't know. It is set in that city, and it's 20 years after Lord Vetinari has legalised the various illegal guilds, the Assassin's Guild and the Thieves' Guild, for the purposes of taxation, and so that there's less unscheduled mayhem around the city, of which is otherwise a fairly complicated place. So there's not much left for the actual city watch to do. They function as a, as a fire spotting and police force. So at the moment, things are a bit quiet for them. They have to look the other way because it's um, fairly sanctioned. Well, Constable Carrot come down from the, uh, the hill country from the mountains, he's a bit gormless and he doesn't know that when he arrives. So he wants to do some regular police work. Well, it's just not on in this new world. Meanwhile, Commander Sam Vines of The Watch, who's a bit of a drinker in this one, and not really the Sam Vines that I know and distrust from the books, he's got a new commission from Lord Vetinari to find a lost book from the stacks of the Unseen University. Now, you might just say, well, hasn't someone just forgotten to return it? Well, you don't do that with books from the Unseen University. They are characters in themselves and extremely dangerous more often than not. So you don't want to touch those. You certainly don't want to nick them unless you've got some particular motive or agenda, which proves the case. And this starts off with Sam Vines being confronted by death himself. You know that that's usually for quite a terminal experience. But in this case, what we're trying to do is set it up so we'll see how he got to that place in the course of this episode. It's all about cliffhangers, really, isn't it? Now, the characters are all changed in this one. We've got uh, Richard Dormer playing Sam Vimes. We know him from uh, Game of Thrones and Musketeers as well, by the way. So obviously he's slipped over from that universe. Uh, but he was Beric... Donned Marion in Game of Thrones. I'm not going to go too much into the cast. I do spot Matt Berry playing the voice of Wayne, a sword. <laughs> and he was, of course, um, Garth Marenghi in Dark Place, as well as being the boss in the IT crowd, at least one of them. And Joe Eaton Kent is playing Constable Cherry, a gender-fluid forensic specialist and not a dwarf in this particular story. There's a few gender swaps and other changes. I actually don't care about that. That's fine. I'm not that much of a Terry Pratchett purist that I'm going to stand in the way of representation. Lara Rossi plays Lady Sybil Rampkin. 
Now, this is all to the good. There are lots of interesting characters in here as in the original watch. I was worried how they were going to portray um, the troll, Sergeant Detritus, and they actually do it quite well. Ralph Innocen plays the the character, but um, the costume, CGI, everything that they've done to make it work looks really good, suitably rocky, shall we say. Haven't seen as good since Ben Grimm as the thing in... He mumbles off. (laughs) There's some good stuff in here. A pocket dragon that Lady Sybil carries around, which is basically (laughs) extremely dangerous. They have a terrible way of sobering up Sam Vimes in this, um, which is probably more dangerous than anything I've ever seen in the Discworld universe. I like the way they portray the goblins. They're a bit like the ones from Labyrinth. They're squat and in rusty armour. I'm not entirely with Sam Vimes drinking so much because of his criminal past, but yeah, Victor playing him does look appropriately ravaged. (laughs) I'm in early days of this yet. I've seen the first episode. If you can get by that without freaking out that it's set in a sort of a diesel punk version of Discworld, emphasis upon the punk, as in punk rock, Uh, you might be able to get a handle on this, but I'm still grappling with it after that first episode. I did like some things in it, disliked some other things, and I think I'll continue watching it. See, they're they're dead clever with this. Eight episodes and you're out. So you think, oh, yeah, I can stick around for that much. But we shall see. Oh, I did like the fact that they included a clax machine, which is um, Discworld for a semaphore sort of setup. There's a line that comes through on that at random that, reports about a tree stuck up a cat oh dear all right now for some reason that is unknown only to them uh they use walk like an egyptian as their uh, main title theme or at least an instrumental version of it i didn't feel like playing the instrumental version today i didn't feel in that sort of karaoke mood so i thought i'd go with a cover by the pupini sisters um, not the bangles original which is fine in itself but you know me sometimes i just feel like discovering new interpretations of songs or at least quite horrific ones in zero g's case has been in the past all right the papini sisters with walk like an egyptian hello this is paul mcgann i play the eighth incarnation of the doctor and you are listening to three triple r fm you are and that was walk like an egyptian the papini sisters an adaptation a cover if you like the Bengals classic hit, used as an instrumental for some inexplicable reason as the main title theme for the air quotes, Terry Pratchetting, The Watch. Now, just to shift gears a little bit to uh, a sadder note to mark the death of US American writer and editor, genre scholar and teacher, Professor Emeritus of Fiction, Grand Master of Science Fiction, awarded in 2007 by the Science Fiction Writers of America, James Edwin Gunn, who was born in Kansas City on July 12th of 1923 and died on December the 23rd in 2020 in Kansas. He was the founding director of the Centre for the Study of Science Fiction at the University of Kansas and a president of the Science Fiction Research Association, as well as being an inductee in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in 2015. Now, I know him mostly for the 100 stories published in magazines and anthologies, 
And he also wrote 28 books, including the Transcendental Machine series. And he was editor of at least 10 anthologies, including at least one of the Nebula Rewards compilations and six-volume Road to Science Fiction collection. Now, his output included a Star Trek spin-off novel, radio plays, and his 1964 novel, The Immortals, which inspired a 1969 telemovie of the same name and a subsequent television series. He won a Hugo Award for Best Nonfiction Book, uh, which was um, Isaac Asimov, The Foundations of Science Fiction. So Vale, James Gunn, a great proponent of and practitioner of the art of science fiction. And of course, we also just mentioned Isaac Asimov, who was born on the 2nd of January in 1920. So I think we shall mark this occasion with a track from the Foundation EP. And this is by a group called D-A-C-C-A, DACA. And this is based upon the Foundation trilogy, of course, called Foundation. Nothing too unusual there, but it's got a nice little sort of science fictional feel to it. And if you have read the Foundation trilogy, you'll be all up on this. Or is it just a trilogy now? No, not in, not even slightly. There have been so many spin-off novels based upon that. And of course, Asimov himself brought this particular universe into sync with his own robot stories as well. Uh, so, you know, Foundation, Foundation and Empire, and Second Foundation, one of the cerebral jewels in the crown of science fiction in general and in terms of future history or psychohistory in particular. Now, I've read some of the adjuncts to this series that have been later worked on by um, people no less than uh, Gregory Benford and so on. Um, I haven't found them particularly as inspirational as I might have, mostly because I feel they disturb the, uh, the clean purity of those first three novels. Now, I don't think that um, Asimov has been served particularly well in adaptations in the visual mediums of his stories, but there was a particularly good eight-part radio adaptation of the Foundation series, um, which uh, the BBC did back in 1973. And they did it in stereo, and I thought it was really fine work. So if you can track down that, the original BBC radio adaptation of the Foundation trilogy. All right, they cut a lot working out of that. But, um, you know, that's the way of an adaptation. Uh, You could also get one of the... excellent talking books of it. Now, they have actually done a, uh, a Foundation television series. I've held that over a couple of times, and we may see that in due course. Obviously, the pandemic has messed around with that too, as with all productions. As I said, it does merge with his robot series, but it's also set, the Foundation stories, in Asimov's university created for pebble in the sky i didn't know that until reading that right now Hmm. 
Interesting. So that's an official Asimov sort of universe series. All right. Uh, enough wibbly-wobbly stuff there. We'll get out of the way for Sophie to come in with Astral Glamour. And so we will leave you with Foundation from Dacca's album, The Foundation Trilogy. That's it for Zero G for today. Thank you, of course, to the podcaster, Kayla Larson, our co-host, Megan McHugh, and our partners, Gail and Carl, as well as to the hardworking staff and volunteers at Triple R who have kept us going through that most challenging of times, 2020, and who are still powering us up in the perhaps hopefully not quite so challenging 2021, but, you know, fasten your seatbelts on your captain's chairs, folks, because it's still a bumpy ride. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.